Welcome to Extra Virgin Travel, podcast for adventurers and armchair travellers. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's either planning her next trip or still talking about her last. Join me now as I meet the passionate explorers and deep dive the destinations that will fire your wanderlust. Hey there, thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Travel. My guest today, Caro Ryan, is a bit of a multi-potentialite and I have to confess I am a little in awe of her many talents. Caro is a writer, a videographer, director and producer, broadcaster with her own podcast, Rescued, and she's an advocate for outdoor pursuits. If that's not enough, she also has her own blog, Lots of Fresh Air, and volunteers for the SES Assisting with Mountain Rescues. Today, as someone who is keen to get out walking, I'm going to ask Caro some of the questions I have, like, am I too old? Am I too unfit? Is hiking hazardous? And what gear do I need? We're also going to discuss some of Australia's great walks. Welcome, Caro. Thanks so much for having me, Natasha. It's great to be here. Caro, I am so pleased to have you on Extra Virgin because I have so many questions. Probably I have too many answers. So. <laughs> well, that's good. I love I love talking about these kind of topics. I love connecting people to wild places, you know, in meaningful ways. And mm. for me, meaningful ways is what's meaningful for them. So, you know, what w- one person might go, oh, I want to conquer mountains and mm. that kind of thing. But other person just like, you know what, I just want to walk to a lookout mm. and see something beautiful and just, just be in the space. Well, I'm probably somewhere between those two things, more more towards the lookout probably than conquer, conquering the mountain. But I'm hoping to get loads of tips from you about that. But let's start with you and your background. Were you an outdoorsy kid? I was so not an outdoorsy <laughs> kid, you know. That surprises um, me. I, do you know, I? it sounds such a cliche to say that I feel like my life changed when I you know, for me, it was a discovery of wild places and discovering that you can actually have these incredible experiences in in the outdoors that that can be really transformative. You know, I was, as opposed to being an outdoorsy kid, I was the fat kid at school. I was the one I always picked last for the netball team, mm. all those kind of things. And I came from a family where up until very recently, actually, I when I've done some research, but I've always thought, you know, we we never went camping, for instance, and I always thought my parents were not at all outdoorsy. My mum's idea of, of camping is where can I plug the hairdryer in, you know? <laughs> so, so that was kind of the 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 place I was brought up in. But you know, recently I found out my dad. I found these old photos of him, and he used to love going fishing with his mates and camping and that kind of thing. But when they got together, mm. because mum was, you know not really into that at all. It just wasn't a thing that we were brought up in. Never did scouts or girl guides or Duke of Ed or any of that kind of stuff. So it was later in my 20s and I did one of those experiential corporate, you know, outdoor leadership programs oh, through work, wow. that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. It, it, and, you know, three days in the wilderness, which included some off-track walking and sleeping in an overhang of like a cave overhang in the middle of the um, Butterwangs National Park. And I woke up going, oh, my gosh, this this, this is a thing? You can do this? I had no idea. And I feel like everything changed from there. 
Mm, Well, this seems like a very basic question, Caro, but for people like me who are quite uneducated when it comes to outdoors, what is the difference between a trek, a hike and just a walk? Do you know, I think it's all ice cream. It's all just ice cream and different flavours, right? So, and and when you think about those terms, traditionally in Australia, I mean, the, the term is, is bushwalk, mm. and that's a purely Australian term. It came out in the sort of 19, it was like the early or late 1920s, early 1930s, the term bushwalk first was, was heard. And a lot of people these days, it's more common for people to say hike. I'm going on a mm. hike rather than going on a bushwalk. And there's, you know, there's a there is a group of people in I know it's hard to believe who you know get a little bit high panted about it and go, oh my gosh, hiking such an American term. You know, oh. we bushwalk here in Australia. And oh. so traditionally, people would say that, you know, hiking is American, bushwalking is Australian, tramping is New Zealand, mm. maybe rambling is is a bit UK mm. kind of a thing. And there is all these terms in different countries and societies have their own terms. People think trekking, which is one of the words you mentioned there, Mm. it's probably more they they think of places like going to Nepal to go trekking. You know, Mm. I'm going trekking in the Himalayas. Like it's a multi-day stretched out, you know, everything on your back or everything on a yak Mm. or everything with porters, that kind of thing. So it's it's a multi-day thing. So it's really, it's horses for courses. It's all, it's moving your body through your legs over natural terrain, you know, call it whatever you want. It's all good. That's what I reckon. (laughs) Well, that is a great explanation. What about this? I'm always so confused when I read about different walks or bushwalks or hikes or treks Mm. with uh, descriptors that say one is easy, medium or difficult because Mm. it seems like it's it's trying to write spicy food. I mean, what what are there official recognised parameters for what easy, medium and difficult actually are in terms of the length of the walk and what you can expect on each or are they just subjective? I mean, I think it's one of the one of the things that I'm really frustrated about sometimes is um, especially when you read comments on some of the popular hiking apps that are out there for finding tracks and trails in your area. Um, people go, oh, it was really hard. And another person go, oh, I found it so easy. And it, like you say, it is it is completely subjective because it's about people's fitness, how mm. much they've got in their fitness bank already, how much experience they've got, how, you know, how they're feeling on the day. But the great news is, is that in Australia, we have the Australian Walking Track Grading System. Mm. So it's a, it's a one to five level system. You can Google that and find it broken down for you. But essentially a number one, is a, a very accessible track. So it's, it's, it's wheelchair friendly. Mm-hmm. It's great for young kids and families. And it's on well-formed track with not much gradient of up and down. And then you get out all the way up to a five where you really need to be fully self-sufficient, have some navigation skills, be able to read the train. You Quite often the track is indistinct or not even there at all. You're actually navigating through mm-hmm. map and compass or through walking with the land and you need first aid skills. You need to be sufficient in terms of emergency communications, like completely. So it's a high level of skill and experience at the mm. five. But there's this beautiful sweet spot for wherever you are in your ice cream flavor, <laughs> anywhere from, you know, you know, one is if you're not sure, like if you're new and starting out, go and choose a, a hike. And so you're going to find that grading listed in the, the national parks, so the land managers 
for each of the states. When they have descriptors on walks, they use that walking track system, so a one to five. And there's also little icons as well. So there's a, a little icon of a of a, um, a figure just walking on flat is for the number one, and there might even be a little wheelchair sign as well. And then up to grade five, you're going to have this same figure, but maybe with a walking pole and up really steep stairs and, you know, there might be some other descriptors as well. So, yeah, if you check out the land manager's own pages and their information and say, hey, I feel like a two today or mm. I'll go and walk a three or, hey, I'm feeling, you know, fabulous and fit and everything's working well for me and I've got some experience, I'm going to try a four or a five, you can seek those out and know that you're getting the hike that's right for you. And that's one of the key things with having a great time out there and also keeping yourself safe because that's that's what we want. We don't want to go out and have an mm. epic and go, that's it, I never want to go out again. I want to go out and say, that is something I love. That was great for my physical health, my Mm. mental health. You know, I was in community with other people. I want to do more of it. And so we want to set ourselves up for success. That's the main thing. That is a great tip. I'm going to check those out. You mentioned uh, fitness. Let's talk about fitness. Obviously, you do need to have some kind of fitness to take on those, I guess, two and above. And if I want to get bushwalk fit, or trekking fit, should I be concentrating on strength or endurance? Ah, Great question. Mm, There's a couple of things there. So the first thing people say, well, what's the best way to get fit to go walking with a, you know, especially if you're going to having, as you should, you know, have a little day pack if you're going out in those days, have a day pack. You want to be carrying everything you need. So there's going to be a bit of weight in that. The best way to get fit for walking is to go walking. Mm. So if you're starting from a zero position, Walk out your front door and set yourself, no, I'm going to walk for an hour today and I'm just going to have maybe a kilo. I'm going to have a litre of water, which is a kilo in my backpack. I'm just going to walk the streets. And then just it's that whole thing of building up gradually. So as you're building up your distance, you're also building up the weight in your pack. And then you're also putting in other things, like you're putting in some ascent and descent, some ups and downs as well. And then... and. That really is that you're doing, you're not only building your endurance in that, but you're also building that cardio fitness as well. And the third kind of fitness that I think is really great, especially when you start getting in the more difficult kind of areas, but also for people who feel they might have weak ankles and that kind of thing, is to work on a core fitness as well. So that's your balance over, that's going to help your whole body Mm. balance over difficult terrain. And there's also this wacky little word called proprioception, which is the connection of your feet ankles, knees, hips, and that the, the, the speed at which the messages between what your feet feel on the ground and your brain receives to adjust your body so you don't roll your ankles, so you don't go over and, and trip and that kind of thing. So yeah, probably I'd say four different types of fitness, but just start with the, start with the cardio and the endurance. Mm, okay. That's great advice. What about mental preparation? Do you prepare mentally before you go on a trek in any particular way? Would you go on a trek, for example, if you were you you were feeling really shit because you know that it's going to help you or, or do you need to be in a in a positive uh, frame of mind to go another great question i could say case in point is i've been invited to go on a, a beautiful trip tomorrow you know it's a it's a walking canyon so it's a canyon here in the upper blue mountains where i live that doesn't need ropes you don't need to abseil or anything beautiful terrain but you might even hear it in my voice i've been battling a bit of a, a bit of a lurgy for the last couple of weeks and i'm thinking oh, 
it's probably going to be good for me, but it's probably borderline. No, I think I might, <laughs> I might flag it. And but, but for a normal, a normal trip, quite often it's that that sense of it seems a lot of energy you need to pack and get ready. Like you know, thinking of what you're going to pack if it's multi days, planning your food out, planning your gear, putting it all into the pack, getting it ready checking all your systems out. It seems like a lot of work. But mm. then when you get out on the track, you're like, oh, I'm so glad I did. Mm. I'm so glad. So I, I've got a, a coming up for a five-day trip down in the Snowies and it feels like after a big year that that I've had this year, it's like, oh, it seems like a lot of energy to mm. get out there. And it is. But you know what? If I put aside or I do a little bit each night in the evening, like, a, you know, spend an hour doing a little bit more packing or oh, I'll put my shopping list together – it's so worth it when you get out there. But mm. obviously, coming back to that safety thing, you want to enjoy yourself out there. If, you, if you're not well, if your body's in, in a dodgy way, if you've got an injury, you know, you've got existing blisters or you've got in bad knees or something, you might want to just temper it a bit, like change your, your, your plans a little bit so you can still get out and get those amazing benefits, like you say, the mental health benefits of mm. getting out there but without, you know, making it worse by, you know, having this huge physical challenge as well. Well, when we want to get kitted up for walking, what do we need? Is it is it, is this an expensive hobby? And there seems to be a lot of very expensive equipment out there. What are the basics that I need to start with in terms of clothing, let's say? It's interesting. You think that it, it's, this, it's this pastime which can be so natural, back to nature. And yes, we see gear stores on almost every corner and, and they always seem to be having sales, right? And there's tents and sleeping bags and puffer jackets and all this kind of technical stuff. But the great news is, is that you don't need a lot to get started. I, I spend a lot of time with my bushwalking club and there's people in the club who go, we go and get our gear from op shops. So mm. they'll go to oppies or oppos, whatever you call them, <laughs> and, and find their gear there because and this is a group of people we walk off track. So we we get pretty pretty dirty and messy and scrappy out there. You don't meet another person because you certainly don't dress up to go in the bush and look good. <laughs> Some people might. And that's if that's their flavor of ice cream, awesome, I say. But yeah, your basic thing is great shoes. Like mm-hmm. you don't need big, heavy walking boots. Like there's this sense that we get, oh, you need hiking boots. Mm. But if you're on a on a, a one, a two, or even a three level track, you you're you really are fine with good cross trainers, something that's yeah. going to give you, and you've got to think of good stability. So can not, and again, that's that proprioception word, are we going to have dodgy ankles? Yeah. But even for myself, I'm when I'm on level four and five tracks, I don't use big boots at all. I use walking shoes, like a flat, solid walking shoe. So yeah. a good good footwear is a great start. Try and avoid cotton where you can. You want fabrics that are going to breathe and they're going to, if, if you're especially in a, a warmer climate, that are going to wick the sweat away from your body just so you're going to be more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And also in cotton and things like jeans are not a great idea because if you get wet, they become really heavy and mm. cold as well. Yeah. So, And a simple backpack from your op shop, mm. you know, someone's giveaway work training, some conference they're on. That's what you <laughs> need, you know, carry your water in it. That's essential. Mm. Some snacks and food, little first aid kit, and know how to use it, and you know set yourself up again for that great experience. And and I think you know we're talking now in summer, and that's one of the key things. People quite often underestimate the amount of water that they need, so they might just have a a six hundred ml bottle of you know the the classic small bottle you get from your service station. And if you're going to be out walking for you know a couple of hours, it's just not going to be enough. So. 
really load up that water. And yes, that's where you're, you're waiting. Your pack is every litre is that kilo. A little bit of training, you're going to feel so much better about it. But that's your basics. Mm. Footwear, little backpack, try and avoid your cotton and take a ranker. Check that weather. That's going to be a good one as well. <laughs> Yeah. And just for our international listeners, Caro's referred a couple of times to op shops. That's like a secondhand clothing <laughs> shop. That's our Australian slang for it. So yes, yes. a charity shop. Yeah. yeah. It's a great idea because a lot of people buy things to wear just, you know, once on, on a trip and then never, never wear it again. And it ends up at the op yeah. shop. So Exactly. That- and also in, in some of the online marketplaces that specialise in outdoor gear, New little searches through that might throw up a few little gems. Mm, Caro, I have watched a video of you on your blog and I am so impressed by your packing skills. They are next level. So let's talk about what are some essentials for a hike, say a multi-day hike, and what are not. And we'd love to get some recommendations of specific brands because I think for someone you know, talking to someone like you who has probably tried a few things, it's great to to find out what works and what doesn't. Absolutely. When it comes to buying your kit that's going to last you a long time, there can be some, you know, some trial and error, which is also why some why some people will be selling things that didn't work for them in mm. some of these online marketplaces. So um, when it comes to things like tents, so when we think of the gear, I, I divide up my packing list and I've got a packing list that people can download for both a day walk or an overnighter. And I divide it into house. So that's going to be your tent, your sleeping mat on the ground. So that's that insulation between you and the ground, not only for comfort levels, but for stopping the cold Mm. coming up through the ground. You've got your sleeping bag and they're kind of your three, like the big, big items that are going to cost you the most. So, you know, some tents you're going to be, you know, are up over a thousand dollars. Yeah, I know. It's it can be big outlays. There are, you know, as with so many things in our lives, there are cheaper alternatives. And sometimes, you know, depending on how you feel with ethics and that kind of thing, you know, there are ways you can access cheaper copies hmm. of that kind of stuff. You know, I would probably, especially if you if you're setting yourself up for long-term investment pieces, I'd avoid those cheap hmm. Um, rip-offs and copies. And when it comes to things like tents, and this is, you know, full disclosure, I am sponsored by MacPack. Mm. But, you know, for a long time, MacPack, which is came out of as a New Zealand brand, were known for their packs and their tents. So I, you know, I use their gear for tents and packs, and they also do other things. But there's other brands that also have a really good reputation in that space. So things like Cedar Summit, mm. again, an Australian brand, they they have this amazing ability to think of things that you may need and it's and design them in really smart ways. Mm. It's kind of like almost there's a lot of accessories that they do that can make life a little bit easier in the bush. But also some solid brands are like Mont and One Planet. Again, I'm I am quoting Australian brands here as well. Mm-hmm. Now, traditionally, a lot of this design that's gone into packs and tents have been quite on the robust side. So there's kind of been this sense that there was only one way to design things. But in the last sort of 10 years, there's been a real big movement towards lightweight mm. packing, lightweight hiking. So it's reducing the the weight in the fabrics, but also in the frames and the designs and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of really smart and ingenious, even little cottage industries that have popped up from people making their own gear 
fact, and if anyone's curious about how to reduce the weight of their pack, because that's something people say, oh, you know, I've got this pack that's, and I'm sorry for your overseas listeners, I am going to quote in uh, <laughs> in metric here. So, I, you know, for me, an overnight, so just for a weekend, I can go out with a pack that might be 12 kilos. Mm. So that, and that's including water, so a 10 kilo base weight with a couple of ki- couple of kilos of water on top of that. Um, whereas traditionally, you know, 15 years ago, that might have been 16, 18 kilos mm, kind of thing. So there's been big reductions. And that, when you think if you're going multi-day and you're walking for this distance, reducing the weight of your pack is going to give you so much more enjoyment and mean you can walk further, your body feels better and stronger. It's you've you're giving yourself more longevity. You're not putting that challenges in your hips and your knees and your ankles long-term. Mm. And that's certainly going to make you a lot happier. So there's that house that's going to be the biggest cost. With, and then when you come to things like raincoats and rain jackets, so it's that shell layer. When we think of gear clothing, it's usually in three layers. There's a base layer, so what's against your skin. There's that mid layer, which is a warmth layer. That's usually things like a, a fleece or a down jacket, that kind of thing. And then we've got the shell layer that's on the outer that protects you from the weather. So that's going to be that raincoat or that rain, those rain, very, very sexy rain pants. <laughs> they're, they're never a good look, but, but yeah, so there's those, those are the, the items when it comes to clothing. And obviously in, cl- in cold climates, you've got to think about things like thermals and beanies and gloves, those kind of extra, extra things as well. But when it comes to packing, take what you need and need what you take. So. Don't overpack. That's the the biggest call. And like I will go for say I've just this year I did the Grampians Peaks Trail, which is a thirteen day trail in Victoria, so about sort of an hour and a half northwest of Melbourne, and beautiful, beautiful trip. And I wore the same shirt every day. Actually, I did change shirts once, so I wore <laughs> a shirt every day, and it was sweaty and it was hot and I was Uh-oh. stinky. There's nobody else out there. Yeah. There's just me. And after a couple of days, you don't smell yourself. <laughs> Lucky. And it's just, yeah, so just minimising. But I did have clean undies. I just would like to clear that up for your <laughs> listeners. Mm. The other big thing about gear, it's really easy to, to overconsume. Mm. And, you know, we think about hiking and spending time in nature as being quite green and Brands like Patagonia really, and and you know they they really set themselves intentionally as uh, you know making decisions to make green choices, and so Patagonia would definitely be another brand that that or to look at the if if it you know to look at the green credentials mm. because you know especially when things are a lot of synthetics mm. uh, and I mean the other big thing is lately is the talk about the coatings. So yeah. the DWR coatings on rain jackets really look at the the credentials of each of the, the brands and 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 look at the one because there there are accreditation. There's ethical down, for instance, you know, mm. like especially so vegans in general don't don't wear down, and for you know, unethical down, horrendous, mm. horrendous. So yeah, I could talk for hours about all sorts of this stuff. So It's very complicated and I guess that's another reason for investing in something you're going to have for a long time. If you're having if to buy something that, you know, is is not 
totally in line with your ethics when it comes to consuming, then you want to make sure that you're not just going to buy it and wear it once or twice and throw it out at least. And I guess if you need to, to find an ethical way of recycling it, if it is something that can be recycled as well. I could talk about that too, but hey, maybe that's a different podcast. Caro, of course we want to keep packs light, but there are some things that would make our life out there just a little bit more comfortable. Have you got any things that you take particularly for that reason? I certainly do. And, you know, I think of them as sometimes the little luxuries, but you know what? Luxury even actually just seems too big a word because it's like, you know what? I would love to sit if I get into camp, you know, or if I've decided to have a day off in the bush, I carry a Kindle. So Hmm. a small light Kindle, I've got a way of reading books and just, ah, you know, so Kindle is is a big one for me. I do enjoy a little bit of wine in the bush, <laughs> um, having a little a little tipple, a little bit of happy hour. Mm. And you know, there's ways of minimising that too. Some people enjoy what we call an LRB, which is not the old Australian band Little River Band. <laughs> it's actually lemon rum and barley. I've never so, heard of that. Yes. So you boil the billy, you've got a nice hot lemon drink, like the old Robinson's lemon barley powder, Mm. like a a lemon or a citrus hot drink. Then you put your your OP rum nip into that Mm. and an OP overproof is going to be, you know, more bang for your buck. You only have to carry a a little amount. So having a, a little drink at the end of the day is nice, you know, and the, the super hardcore people would probably not even take a hair comb, you know, to, to comb the hair. I've got hair down to my armpits at the moment. So a classic thing a lot of people with long hair do is you put your hair in plaits at the start of a multi-day walk and it just, it just, it deals with it. You don't have to, you don't take it out every day. You just leave the plaits in. You don't know how dirty your hair is getting. I'm, gonna, I'm just realising your, your listeners are going to think I'm a little, a little <laughs> rough. So, ooh, this person sounds really, really a little bit nasty. I, I have a good cleanliness level, really, I, tr- I promise. Some other little luxuries. Some people would only take two pairs of undies and wash them out. Mm. I do carry a few more. I love having a, a little wash at the end of the day and, and something in terms of the, you know, protecting the wild places that we visit. So we don't want to use soaps. We don't want to use detergents. Even the ones that say they're, you know, will break down in water mm. or they're, they're fine for, for green spaces, actually it's best to avoid it. So we don't want to introduce anything into nature that's not there. So mm. if you're going to go wild swimming, which I love, also just sort of think about minimising your sunscreens, that kind of thing. But, yeah, having a wash. So I might carry a couple of cloths just to have a, a nice little wash. Mm. I mean, this doesn't sound much luxury to, <laughs> <laughs> to, to most people. But I think I, one thing I love about being in in a wild place is removing the stuff from your life and realising how little you actually need to be happy and to watch the sky colours changing from a cliff at the end of the day and just to have your feet up on a rock. There's no devices pinging and going off. You're listening to the sounds. You've got your whole self there. All your five senses are there. And yet you might have just read a chapter of a book. That's you know, not having a lot of stuff with you is, is is one of the things that's nice about, you know, coming into into these places. Um, it sounds pretty luxurious to me. Yeah, exactly. You know, people pay a lot, a lot of money to spend in really, really fancy high-level accommodations and resorts and villas and that kind of thing. And not saying that I don't like that every hmm. now and then, I've got to say. 
I do love a bit of Lux. But, you know, to me, quite often when you look into these places, what they provide you is that same experience you get from sitting on a clifftop with a book, watching the sky change and nobody around. You know, people pay that premium for removing themselves from Mm. you know from society and in so many ways that's what spending time in in nature can do for you without paying four thousand dollars a night Mm. well you touched a little bit about taking care of the environment and our aim i guess is always to leave it looking like we've never been there if we're doing multi-day hikes which involve camping what are some of the ways that we can ensure that we do that Mm. And I like how you phrase that because to use that wonderful organisation from the States called Leave No Trace, we always leave a trace, you know. And so it is about minimising the, the the shadow that we leave behind us. So when it comes to camping, always camping on durable surfaces. So using existing pads where there's been tents put down. If you're in an area that allows campfires to use existing fire pits, don't sort of start one in a new area. One of the things that people don't often consider when it comes to leaving No Trace is actually practicing safe hiking. So it's that sense of telling someone where you're going and how is that connected to our footprint on the environment? Because when if if you do find yourself lost and you there has to be a rescue, the the efforts that go into finding someone can actually have some pretty, you know, they, they do leave an imprint on the on the world around us. So whether that be helicopters and, you know, a hundred people with boots on the ground going out to try and find mm. you. If you just told someone where you're going and then if you don't come back, we know, oh, oh Natasha. Oh, she said she was going on this mm. track. Oh, there she is. Oh, <laughs> I can yeah. see her. Good we'll go point. we'll go pick her up. So so practicing those kind of smart techniques, but but definitely. So camp on durable surfaces, use existing fire pits. Don't introduce, like I said, any chemicals into the area like sunscreen into water streams, no soaps and detergents, that kind of thing. Not cutting timber. Mm. And it's all going to be different depending on where you are in the world, what the rules are and the places that you visit. So the land managers of different places, whether it be national parks or state forests or any of those kind of things, they're going to have their own guidelines as what you can do in those areas. So always, you know, check out what the land manager says because they're the ones who who should have a really good idea of how to look after their area the best. So Caro, what's your advice if you get lost or injured while you're out there? That is a really super good and important question. The first thing is just not panic. There's a wonderful old story that apparently the the British SAS used to teach their soldiers to sit down and make a cup of tea. If you find yourself lost, you don't know where you are because mm-hmm. when you think about it, it sounds a bit a bit twee, but it's you. It's going to take you, you know, five eight minutes to boil the billy, get the stove out, put, you know, that kind of thing. So you you're causing yourself to slow down. You're making yourself hydrated by having a nice cup of tea. You're actually comforting yourself, hopefully again, to remove some of that panic. Mm. Because if you try and make decisions in a panicked state, and, you know, we've all done it before, some of our worst decisions have been in a panic. So if you can calm yourself down, stop, sit down, relax, and then slowly come up with a plan of what you're going to do. That's the first one. Mm-hmm. The second one is, which is even actually dialing back, even before we begin, comes back to that, tell someone where you're going. Mm. 
Because if you have told someone where you're going, the searches, so people like um, myself and the other volunteers in different agencies who come looking for you, we know where to go looking, you know. If you haven't told someone where you're going, your chances of being found when you really need help are really, really low. Like it, mm. it's it's tricky. Mm. So so you've stopped, you've told someone where you're going. First of all is make yourself visible. So, again, it's thinking back to your preparation and planning beforehand. If you've chosen to, you know, get yourself a, a raincoat and wear clothes that are in the uh, beige and the black and the brown <laughs> and the, the olive green kind of tones, oh. it's so interesting, though, because and, and this is discussions that I have with, with MacPack and with, you know, a lot of people in the outdoors we do as well. Design and make clothes for the outdoors that are visible and mm. better for safety. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of, I could go into a whole lot of reasons why they don't always do that. And there's actually, you know, pretty valid reasons as well for them. But wearing bright colour clothes. So the the worst thing is when we turn up for a search and we say to the police, okay, so what were they wearing? And they go, well, it was a, you know, this person was wearing camo, camo pants and a black T-shirt. <laughs> and it's like, great. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> where do we start? Okay, so make yourself visible. Mm. You've told someone where you're going. But then back to you sitting in the bush wondering what to do. Mm. Decide if you're going to self-rescue. Mm-hmm. And that means, okay, well, I've I've had a thought and maybe I reckon I knew I where I was back on a track about, you know, it's over there somewhere. You know, you've got an idea. Like, I think it was, oh, there was a sign back about, oh, was that like about 10 minutes ago? But the track sort of got a bit you know, indistinct since then. Mm. So set yourself an alarm on your watch. Go, okay, well, for 10 minutes, I'm going to go in that direction where I think it is. And what the alarm does is it's going to stop you from just continuing and and moving and possibly getting yourself even more lost. Mm. So I'm going to go for 10 minutes in that direction because I think that's where the sign was or that's where the track was. And then you set your alarm, you go off and you go, okay, 10 minutes, I haven't found myself or maybe I have, you know. So you, again, you've got another decision point. And each time you've got a decision point, be slow, be measured and and really think through that. And think of your resources. Think of what's what have you got with you? How much water do you have? How much food do you have? How much daylight is left? Are you alone? Do you have other people in your party? Is anyone injured? Has anyone got a, a medical condition? Like maybe someone... Maybe someone needs medication at a certain time. You've only got enough for that day, or or that kind of thing. So all of those factors, those in terms of like a a, a checklist of resources, they're going to better inform your decisions. And then you get to a point you go, you know what? I've tried to self rescue because I thought it was in this direction. It's it's not okay. I can at this point stop, sit myself down, and you know, sort of bed yourself in, okay, I'm going to sit here, make myself as visible as possible. So hopefully visible to helicopters or to searches from a high point. If it's safe to do so, get to a high point. So you're actually visible above canopy of trees Mm. and sit it out and wait, you know, do you have enough water? How can I, how can I find shelter if the weather's turning? Mm. And this is where we think about carrying devices with us because obviously, you know, all of this conversation I, I've I've done from a point of oh, you know, maybe my phone 
is out of coverage. Maybe my phone's out of battery. Have I carried a a battery pack to recharge my phone? Have I got coverage? Can I call the emergency services from wherever I am? Mm. So if you can, fabulous. Here in Australia, we've we've got an app called Emergency Plus that gives us our latitude, longitude, location. We can actually give that to the emergency services emergency number and they can send someone to help right where we are. Wow. Now, yeah. So Emergency Plus, in this is a, for the Australian audiences, is a great um, app to always have on your phone. And it also gives that the what three words, which is a, a system of location, locating your position on the earth using three words instead of a whole long string of numbers, which for people who might have difficulty with numbers, it's a, it's a much easier way. So this app will give you that location. And if you're out of phone coverage, that's where carrying something like a personal locator beacon, a PLB, or another kind of device that's called a Send device. Now, that's um, some of the brand names around that are Zolio or an InReach, a Garmin InReach, or a Spot Tracker. Now, these are satellite communicating devices that don't need phone coverage, and they're two-way devices. So you can send a message via satellite to mm. your nearest and dearest to say, hey, I'm lost. You know, and as you send that message, it also tags and attaches your location to that for latitude, longitude. So your your nearest and dearest can um, advise the emergency services or even these devices because of the way they're designed. They also have an SOS button. So if someone is actually hurt or injured, you can just push that SOS button and that sends a, um, a message to the emergency services via a third party, but it does go straight to the emergency services to get help to your location. Again, another oh. really long-winded <laughs> I had no idea those things existed, so that's fantastic. <laughs> but, of course, we don't all have to set out to do these these kind of hard core walks where we need to bring this equipment or or even to carry packs a good way to start probably to inspire a love of walking in the outdoors is to do uh, a guided walk or one of these kind of more luxury end walks where somebody carries your pack for you you don't you just set mm. off with a day pack I guess this would be a great option for a beginner like me can you tell us a bit about some of the walks specifically in Australia about the great walks of Australia Yeah, I love this question and I love it for a few reasons. But the term Great Walks of Australia is, it's a bit confusing for some people because Mm. that term for us came from New Zealand. So New Zealand is known for its multi-day walks in beautiful national parks through the Docklands, the Department of Conservation Lands in in New Zealand. And they used the term Great Walks to describe it. It was like a, a library of, you know, say there was 15 walks or whatever. And some of those would be familiar to your listeners, things like the Milford Track, the Kepler, the Route Burn, that kind of thing. So that was the New Zealand Great Walks thing. And then some people here in Australia thought, oh, we need a similar kind of thing. So there's actually, there's a, an organisation which is actually a marketing brand mm. under Tourism Australia called Great Walks of Australia. So it's actually not about the walks themselves, mm. like directly through the, the national parks or the land manager. It's a, a marketing brand. It's like a department within Tourism Australia that has has gone and looked at all the different commercial operators of these 
larger walks in Australia and gone, you know, we have a certain benchmark Mm. and if these products, these walking products meet them, they've got a certain level of support, maybe a level of luxury, a certain quality standard to them, Mm. then then the marketing department, this this Great Walks of Australia department within Tourism Australia, will promote them. So there's obviously some process that these organisations can sign up to be Mm. part of this um, promotion, this marketing brand. So um, there's, I mean, there's some classic ones that come to mind. I think the best one would probably be the Cradle Huts, Mm -hmm. um, which is the the walk in Tasmania. So that's the overland track, which walks from Cradle Mountain through to Lake St. Clair through through, uh, Tassie. And that's sort of a six day walk. Mm. Now you can walk that independently, carrying all your own stuff, making the plans yourself, doing all your own logistics and food, or you can sign up and go, as you say, with a guided company. So one of the guided companies is a company who has a, a lease within the park to have these private huts. So, yeah, it's a private hut. You've got a guide. Mm. And that organisation, they've signed up and they're part of this Great Walks of Australia. But there's loads of other of these organisations too. So there's Arkaba down in South Australia is another one in the Flinders Ranges area. Now, I haven't done that, so I, I'm, I'm speaking just as, uh, as someone who knows about these kind of walks. And there's a sort of, it's like a collection of, I think if, if you've got, and because quite often these are at a fairly high price point as well, if people mm. are, are on a bit of a budget, but if money isn't a problem or if you want to go, you know what, I'm going to set myself and save up for this, yeah. and you're looking for a premium guided walking experience, that's what you're probably going to find within that Great Walks of Australia. Mm. Now, the other kind of Great Walk of Australia is Queensland do it too. I think they call it Great Walks of Queensland. But these are these are walks within the land managers, within the national parks that just sort of meet a certain standard. It might be okay. So it's a three-day walk. Yes, there are huts or no, there's not. You, you still need to book it. You'll just pay a minimum fee, but you you know, you you can either look after yourself or there there may be other guiding companies who can take you. Mm. And it's their collection within the national park. So it's kind of a bit confusing. Mm. I hope I, I hope I did some way of explaining the difference there to you, but there's the marketing brand, Great Walks of Australia. And then there's just like, oh, you know, a lot of people just call them Great Walks. Because of the confusion, some parks are starting to use the term iconic walks, uh. the iconic walks of New South Wales or the iconic walks of Australia. So, you know, the three capes in Tassie, you know, the cape to cape in WA, the Bibbulmun track, it's over a thousand kilometers in Western Australia. Gosh. Um I know it's 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 epic really <laughs> when you think about things. And there's other things like the the Green Gully track in New South Wales. So many walks and you know, and lots being developed too. And there are some different voices in the in the space who have different feelings about how much national parks should be developed or mm. not, and should they have private leasehold or not. Oh, but that's for another day. It is. It's another day and another podcast. We are very lucky to have some some fantastic walks, great walks, both uh, in capitals and, mm. and lowercase. And, and, and lowercase, exactly. <laughs> but if you were to advise somebody, like a tourist coming to Australia mm. to do, they only had time to do one iconic walk in Australia, mm. what, would be, what would be something that really encapsulates Australia for a tourist? It really comes down to 
interest, I the guess. flavour of ice cream that mm. they like. Mm. If they want a desert experience, if they want a, a Central Australian experience, something like the Jat Buller, it's not too difficult. It's about three days. And again, you can go with a guiding company for that. In fact, it's an easier way to do it because it's so popular that the it's limited spaces, so bookings, whereas mm-hmm. the guiding companies have a separate system that they work to. The Lara Pinta, again, mm. Central Australia, if you want the red dirt, you want those dry, gnarly, big skies, sleeping under stars, that kind of thing, Lara Pinta or the Jet Buller. If you like mountain lakes and streams and, and big beautiful, wild-feeling places, then, yeah, the, the overland track in Tasmania is mm. five to six days. If you want a coastal experience, then, yeah, the Three Capes in Tassie would be a great one as well, and and that's sort of a three-day. So if you're coming from overseas, you've only got a limited time, you probably don't have enough to do the full Lara Pinta, you know, that, mm. that's like a 14 to 17-day. But you can do these, you can pop in and out and do like a three-day section um, so if you want other snowy mountains, you know, people think of, of Mount Kosciusko and things like that, our highest peak. So there, there are also some opportunities there. So depending on what you like, if you want beaches, if you want to do some beach walking, that kind of thing, maybe it's the light to light walk in the South Coast or up in Queensland around the, on, on Gari. So formerly known as Fraser Island, there's a beautiful multi-day walk up there. So that's getting to those Queensland islands kind of thing. So really, whatever your flavour is, whatever kind of Australia you want to experience, there is a multi-day walk for you and there would be a guiding company as well who can help you do that, whether it's on a a low budget and mid-budget or you're wanting something a bit more on the luxe level. Well, I'm feeling very inspired. And my question to you, Caro, is what what do you think some of the benefits this lifestyle has brought to you? And what would you say to people who are considering doing this are the benefits to them? Mm. Apart from the, the obvious physical benefits, so I mean, I did mention to you that I was the fat kid at school. So I, for, for me, my exercise, I don't belong to a gym. It is mm. I just go walking. Mm. I just walk. You know, it doesn't cost me anything. So there's a physical benefits, not necessarily mm. skinny or fit. I mm. just want to feel strong. And yeah. yeah, fit that, you know, you can walk up hills and not be sweating and puffing and, and feeling like you need a, you know, a week's holiday at the top. So it's the physical benefits for sure. But for me, it's it's the benefits of calming the mind, slowing mm. down, being connected to the bigger things, being connected to to the landscape. What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you see? What do you feel? Connecting to the sense of wonder and awe, to sit on the edge of a cliff and to look at ancient landscapes, like here in the Blue Mountains, you know, sandstone landscapes that have been carved over millions and millions of years and just sit and listen and just wonder. It makes you feel incredibly small, but for me, it relieves and reduces and lightens the load of the modern life as well as the the community aspect, having friends that we all share these experiences together and in terms of keeping safe in the bush, then actually heading out with other people is a great way of doing that. Wow. Well, listeners, if you're not inspired by that, I would say that you don't have a soul. And I'm going to put some links on the Extra Virgin website, including Caro's blog and her YouTube, etc. Caro, it has been such a pleasure. You really have inspired me. Having done a 
a walk in Patagonia, I mm. I felt like it was quite a life changing moment for me, and that I'm really interested in doing some more. So thank you for all that useful information and inspiration. I'm going to to go now to the Great Walks website and have a look at what I might be able to do. Fantastic! Thanks so much for the chat, Natasha. And uh, maybe you and me will have to go on a walk sometime. Oh yeah, I think I've got a bit of a, a bit of work to do to catch up to your um your standard at, right now. It's but... all ice cream. Remember, we'll just we'll just take our flavors. <laughs> thank you, and listeners, thank you so much again for joining me for this episode of Extra Virgin. And wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appetit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin Travel. You can get more travel inspiration on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can follow Extra Virgin Travel on Instagram and Facebook or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you like what we do, you can support us by buying a virtual coffee at our website too. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast to like, download and subscribe so you never miss an episode.